I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is K-Pop. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon has been trying to change the Senate's filibuster rule since at least 2011. But with a Democrat in the White House and Democrats in the Senate majority eager to pass his agenda, Merkley's work is taking on new urgency, especially with federal voting rights legislation hanging in the balance. We get into how the filibuster used to work, how the filibuster has been used more recently, and why he's not moved in the slightest by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's articulated worries about what could happen to the Senate if Democrats get rid of the filibuster. If anyone's destroyed the Senate, it's Mitch McConnell. His strategy of obstruct and delay has been deeply, deeply damaging. Senator Merkley has a lot to say, and you can hear it all right now. Senator Merkley, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You bet. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. So from what I understand, you are in the in the Senate, in the Democratic caucus. You are you're Mr. Filibuster reform. You've been working on this. Correct me if I'm wrong, since at least 2011. And from what I from what I've read, you and then Senator Tom Udall had put forth a proposal, a filibuster reform proposal, and nothing happened. What was that proposal? Well, in 2011, uh, we put up a uh, rule change that would have converted us as a Senate to the talking filibuster, kind of restoring and strengthening the vision of debate in the Senate. Because after the 75 rule change, you ended up with this silent, invisible obstruction. And people will say, why is the Senate not doing anything? Well, because somebody's filibustering. What do you mean? There's, there's There's no one speaking on the floor. And that's silent, no effort obstruction. Uh, has really deeply damaged this place. And I did throw myself into that discussion when I came back to the, the Senate. I say coming back to the Senate in 2009 as, as, a, as a senator, uh, because I had interned here in the 70s. I had worked for Congress in the 80s. I had seen the Senate work. And I was just stunned uh, by the deterioration of the Senate as an institution that could debate issues. And so, so with these silent filibusters, does that mean one senator, you, if you wanted to, you could derail um, legislation by just by saying you object or you you want to you want to filibuster this bill. Well, not 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 quite. Under the these so-called silent uh, filibuster, uh, what it meant was that the ratio of senators needing to decide whether to close debate was decreased, but it was changed from the members present and voting to a percent of the, of the body as a whole. And that little twist doesn't sound like much and people didn't understand this at the time, but what it meant is those who want to obstruct never have to show up for a cloture vote. They're, they're automatic no's by not being here because the majority has to get 60 votes. Prior to that, um, repeated votes could be held and those obstructing had to make sure they had 34 senators in the, in the wings uh, ready to uh, to vote against proceeding. So they, it went from a tradition of, of people speaking, of having a very public battle, and of those obstructing having to be present, to these those obstructing not having to be present, either to speak or to vote. Uh, so that's the silent filibuster, and it, 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 it completely uh, developed as people slowly recognized that the rule change had this unintended impact. And so now everyone's talking about the talking filibuster, 
which sounds like what you were trying to get back to in 2011. Um, so, and, and, and you've got Senator Lindsey Graham who says, you know, have at it, quote, I would talk till I fell over. I mean, is the talking filibuster a, a, a middle ground? Is it a reasonable solution considering where we are today, 10 years after you originally proposed going back to that? Well, certainly having uh, time and effort required by those who want to obstruct and doing it in the full light of day so that America can see that people are on the floor and they're on the floor speaking all night would be a big improvement over the, the invisible, silent, no effort obstruction. of. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a bipartisan bill on energy efficiency like Portman Shaheen or Shaheen Portman. Uh, that, that bill uh, went to the floor numerous times and folks said, well, let's see, we wanna get something else into it. We'll just block this. Well, if they had had to stay all night and keep the debate going, if they'd had to stay all weekend to keep the debate going, I don't think that would have happened. I think we would have gotten to a, uh, a vote, people would say, no, 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 let this, let this go. That's, and that fits with those who have celebrated the filibuster as potentially encouraging a compromise to get worked out. Uh, that only is true if both sides are having to spend time and energy and therefore have an incentive to work out a compromise. So one, it would be visible to the public. Two, it would be required by effort by those who obstruct. Three, it would much more encourage uh, compromise or a resolution uh, than what our current system. All right, Senator Merkley, I mean, that sounds reasonable and rational, um, but I'm, it doesn't quite fit with the Republican Party that's uh, in the Senate right now. Compromise, as we've seen, especially over the last 10 years, is a dirty word. And in some of the pushback on talking filibuster, not pushback, but yeah, pushback, folks saying, you know what? If Democrats go for the talking filibuster, then Republicans can just grind the gears to a halt even more by just talking for weeks, if not months on end, to stop a bill from happening. So is that true? Isn't that a real danger? Well, I think on modest bills, it's very unlikely they'd spend the time and effort in that, in that fashion, because we know how hard it is to get people to speak through the night on the few occasions we've, we've attempted to do so. I mean, people don't want to come in on a bill that they really have no real objection to. They don't want to come in at 3 a.m. if there's only two or three people who really object to the, the bill having a, a, a vote. Uh, those two or three are not going to keep the speaking 24 hours a day through, through a weekend. Uh, the, uh, the other thing is, is that under the talking filibuster, you, can, you don't have to be locked into it. You can say, hey, there's enough obstruction and enough uncertainty. Let's send this back to committee. Let's table it. Let's send it back to committee for further work. Let's set it aside because this is a non-essential bill and, and we don't have time for this extended period. So it's not as if you're trapped into a, an extended debate. And Republicans are saying, well, well, if you go back to the talking filibuster, we'll just read every bill or a few other forms of obstruction. Listen, they've already completely paralyzed the, the, the place. And I don't think it would be, I think the, the concept is so in sync with what Americans think is fair and decent that those who obstruct should have to spend time and effort. I just don't think it's a winning position for them to, to become complete obstructionists any more than they are now. So what, it's not that much more damage. They've, I, mean, I mean, Mitch McConnell's theory of power has been obstruct and delay. He took it from Gingrich, but in the Senate, he had two tools Gingrich didn't have in the House. 
One are the nominations, which can be delayed for forever and eat up all the time of, of the Senate. And the second is this no effort obstruction. Uh, so um, there's one other critical point here, Jonathan. Yeah. If we're talking about this like it's filibuster versus no filibuster, but the Republicans under Mitch McConnell's leadership already tore down the filibuster on their top two priorities. So they tore it down on tax cuts for the rich by changing what could be done under reconciliation, overthrowing the, the Conrad rule, uh, and they did it on the Supreme Court. Uh, so it, essentially you have one side that has said our priorities will be simple majority. And our, the question is, are Democrats saying, well, we'll just accept that, that, that there's an unequal application of the rules to your priorities versus our priorities. And that, and that gets to something, and I'm glad you put it that way, because we're going to get there in terms of democratic priorities, or as you say, our priorities. But I need you to, to define two things. One, you mentioned the Conrad rule. What's the Conrad rule, or what was it? So back in uh, 1974, we had, we had the Senate decide as a group that the deficit was so important, there should be a simple majority path to reduce the deficit. Then the Republicans decided, well, we really want to do tax cuts, primarily for the richest Americans. And so they changed the rule to allow an increase in deficits rather than just a decrease in deficits. They could use the simple majority pathway called reconciliation to do tax cuts. So they used that for the 2001 tax cuts under, under Bush. And then Kent Conrad said, well, that is a, a gross um, um, corruption of the idea of a special pathway to reduce deficits. So he changed the rule back. So the Conrad rule was put in place. And then the Republicans under Mitch McConnell tore it back down so that they could do the 2017 tax cuts. They took it back to a simple majority for tax cuts for, for the rich. And you have to ask, why, why should protecting the ballot box for all Americans be able to be obstructed by a minority when tax cuts for the rich can be done without by a simple majority? I mean, it's, um, in fact, I really thought that our new uh, uh, senator uh, from Georgia in his maiden speech was powerful when he said, why should minority rights in the Senate be allowed to use to suppress minority rights for all Americans? Voter suppression. And, and that was, you're talking about Senator Raphael Warnock um, from Georgia and dear listener, Kent Conrad is the former senator from North from North Dakota. But let's keep talking, go down this this um, side route here and keep talking about voting rights, because the, the For the People Act, which is H.R. 1, and then there's also H.R. 4, which is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which is going to come up later. But when it, there are a lot of Democrats who are saying if ever there was a time to to just end the filibuster, it is now if only to get the For the People Act through the Senate and on President Biden's desk. How could you, is there a way to reform the filibuster so that, or so that the For the People Act, H.R. 1, could be carved out from um, filibuster in the way that Supreme Court justices now can get a simple majority vote and lower court judges, federal judges, can get a simple majority vote? Yes, uh, ab- absolutely. The, the Republicans carved out by simple majority reinterpreting the rules uh, to allow the tax cuts to be done by simple majority. They reinterpreted the rules to allow the Supreme Court to be done by simple majority. Uh, Democrats reinterpreted the rules to allow lower courts to be done by supermajority when there was a, a two-year blockade on Obama's uh, judges. Uh, and so, but you have to have 50 votes uh, to carve it out. 
Uh, I absolutely uh, support that. It's a, a piece of the dialogue I've been having with members of the Democratic Caucus of, is this an approach we could get 50 votes behind? Because in the end, that's the question. Uh, what can we get 50, 50 votes for? Uh, and um, so uh, I, I think that our, we've taken an oath of office uh, that is to the Constitution. And the Constitution is founded on access to the ballot box. And we have had a vision of uh, government by and for the people, which means access to the ballot box. But we had an imperfect beginning with blockades uh, for Black Americans and Native Americans and poor uh, Americans uh, and uh, women. And we fixed those over time. And we really thought we'd gotten there by the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, because we only had a handful of states that were really suppressing the vote. And we established in that act preclearance. You cannot block the ballot box and any rules that you change have to be pre-cleared. And that's what the Supreme Court gutted, basically saying this is no longer an issue. Like we've evolved away from this era. Well, it turns out we haven't evolved away from this era. And it's, it's not just uh, this, this, the former suspect states. It's so many states across the country. And well, if we're going to honor our oath of office, we, we have to protect the ballot box, which means we have to find a way to pass S1, whether by carving it out or by going to a talking filibuster and having the debate before all Americans or by getting rid of the filibuster completely or by getting the Republicans to agree they won't filibuster that bill, which is unlikely. But we have to find a way to get there. And and um, in terms of let's say they decide to so let's say HR or now S1 is subject to talking filibuster rules. This is another uh, another thing I, I needed for you to clarify for me. And that is in a talking filibuster. Is it let's say the Republicans do it and Senator McCain starts out by, you know, talking till he's blue in the face to try to to try to stop the bill from proceeding. Can he, like a, a a relay runner, hand off the talking duties to someone else? Can they do that? Or must the person who starts the talking filibuster stand in the well of the Senate and keep talking for however long they can? No, they can uh, pass it on from one person to another. The understanding is that if there's no one ready to be to be recognized to speak, then the chair can call the question, which means you hold the vote. So therefore the, the teeth and the talking filibuster are, you've got to keep somebody ready to speak when someone else finishes. So when one person is done, someone else asks uh, for permission uh, to, uh, to speak or the right to speak. And then is there, I mean, I guess you can figure this out if you change the rule, but are there rules in terms of senators, like with impeachment, all the senators had to be there. So with a with filibuster, talking filibuster, do all the senators or or a portion of the senators have to be there, especially the ones who are leading the filibuster? So the short answer is is no, uh, but the the more complex answer is that you could have uh, votes uh, under cloture motion, that is a motion to close debate, or under reconsideration of a motion to close debate at various hours. So essentially people would have to hover uh, nearby. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so continuously present, no, hovering somewhere close by, uh, potentially, depending on how the majority wanted to proceed. So it's not like um, someone says, I'm filibustering, they start talking, and then you all scatter to the wind. Scatter to the wind. You, know, you can imagine under the essentially the decision not to hold periodic uh, votes on cloture, uh, let's say it's over a weekend, 
that the majority that wants to proceed would have to keep somebody in the chair and somebody else ready to take the chair and also ready to object to a unanimous consent request. Uh, the, those who want to obstruct would have to keep someone speaking, someone ready to speak. And so essentially it's a level playing field. Whereas currently uh, the majority has to be able to summon uh, folks to keep basically a quorum and in the minority or those who want to obstruct don't have to show up at all. So you have a complete imbalance, but it would be a, a kind of a much more level playing field under the talking filibuster. All right, let's talk about Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who um, he's given a couple of interviews now where, and a speech on the floor where he basically said, Democrats, if you do this, you, you, know, you will reap what you sow, that you are treading down a dangerous line um, on a on the uh, Holmes and Smug podcast. He said, quote, I think if they destroy the essence of the Senate, the legislative filibuster, they will find a Senate that will not function. And then he goes on to say it could turn the Senate into sort of a nuclear winter, not the aftermath of the so-called nuclear op- nor the aftermath of the so-called nuclear option is not a sustainable place. And this from the man who's done the nuclear option many times. Uh, so uh, uh, it, it's a it, no, it's a fine speech, but it's just not accurate. He's not admitting that he has used the nuclear option. He used it to change 30 hours of debate to two hours so he could pack the lower courts. He used it to allow a simple majority to to put people on the Supreme Court after basically obstructing Obama's nominee uh, for the better part of a, of a year. Uh, if anyone's destroyed the Senate, it's Mitch McConnell. His strategy of obstruct and delay uh, has been deeply, deeply damaging. Let's think about this. Under when President Johnson was majority leader of Johnson, in six years as majority leader, he had to file one motion, one in six years to close debate because the Senate understood the Senate's a simple majority body and that to do obstruct that is piracy. That's where the term filibuster comes from. It means piracy. So then comes along Reed. And, uh, and Mitch McConnell decides maximum uh, obstruction. And so in six years, guess how many times Harry Reid had to file a motion to close debate? I'm kind of guessing you'll underestimate the number. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember that time. It was everything. It was everything, everything. It- 400 times, Jonathan. And each one of those times can eat up a week of the Senate's time. Because you have to, because it was in, intended to be used very, very rarely in exceptional circumstances when the pirates had taken over the Senate, which meant you have to wait two days to hold a vote on closing debate. And if you succeed in closing debate, you have to spend up to another 30 hours in debate before you get to a final vote, which is a full week of the Senate's time. 400 times in a six year period. Well, 52 weeks times six years is 312. Uh, there, I mean, he basically completely paralyzed the Senate. He is the destroyer of the Senate as a legislative body. And so uh, that, that, that crime rests on his shoulders. So my colleague um, on, uh, at the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, had a, a column the other day where she basically said, Democrats, um, be careful, because if you do away with the filibuster, to pass your priorities, voting rights, um, equal rights for LGBTQ Americans, 
uh, gun control, which we haven't gotten to yet. But that now, given what's happened in in Atlanta and Boulder, um, that is now front and center again. That if the Republicans come in and, and take over the Senate, they'll compl- then their priorities they're going to just steamroll them through. What do you make of that? That notion that Democrats shouldn't do away with the filibuster for fear of what Republicans would do when they're back in the majority, whenever that is. I, w- I wanted to tear out some of my hair on that column because Ruth did not identify the fact that Republicans have already torn down the filibuster on their own priorities. And so they have a, what they think is a perfect situation because it's kind of heads they win, tails Democrats lose. So that's why Mitch McConnell likes it the way it is. He's, he's already gotten rid of the filibuster on his priorities. He doesn't really want to do policy on health care or housing or education or living wage jobs, equality of opportunity, uh, immigration, uh, taking on climate change. He's very happy. His, his, his core base are powerful organizations that want corporate power and tax cuts for the rich. He has the ability to pack the court to put in federal society members to pursue the corporatist side and he has the ability to do tax cuts for the rich he's pretty happy camper so uh uh, that's that's a much more accurate framing of the situation than ruth put forward okay so well then what about this though it seems so groups like planned parenthood and NARAL they've relied upon the filibuster to protect abortion rights they've been kind of they've been silent noticeably silent during all of this debate so, I mean, do abortion rights organizations have more to fear if the filibuster is gone? I hear you on judges and tax cuts, but when it comes to a woman's right to choose, that is a priority for a lot of Republicans to do away with. Well, actually, you know, a majority of support uh, reproductive rights across the country. And so the, the Republicans have been happy to pursue this through the courts and through, through states where they have a predominant uh, presence, but, but they are nervous about take, making this the national issue. They think they'll get crushed in the elections if, if they do so. So the risk is probably modest, but let's say that, that they decided to go crazy on this front. Uh, they won, if it's a talking filibuster, we would have the ability to obstruct them the same way they can us under a, a talking filibuster. And you know, we, we would put out the effort to protect uh, reproductive rights. So they would have to, for a long period of time, <laughs> for many weeks, they would have to be fighting for something that is that they would lose uh, suburban nights across this country, and they'd pay the price in the next election. They probably wouldn't even succeed in getting it done. They'd have to have the trifecta to begin with. They'd have to decide to put enormous political energy on this, which for them is a losing national uh, position. Uh, so uh, the risk is minimal. And then when it comes to gun control, um, background checks, Uh, concealed carry, all of these things that have enormous popular support. Background checks has a 90% approval rating among the American people, and yet it can't get anywhere um, in in Congress and certainly not in the Senate. Um, Is getting a gun control bill worth doing away with the filibuster to get it passed? Well, we had um, a Manchin-Toomey bill that got, uh, I don't know, it was 56 or 58 votes. Uh, Republicans made sure it didn't get 60, but there was substantial Republican support for it. 
Uh, and uh, same with the, the, the DREAM Act, you get 50, but not, not 60. Uh, closing the wage gap uh, between men and men, women, uh, so on and, and so forth. I don't think it's really about any one issue after you go apart from S1. I mean, we do have a constitutional responsibility to defend the ballot box. I mean, not only is it a fundamental right of all Americans to participate, but, but obstructing the ballot box has also been an enormous source of systemic racism. We've just come off a year uh, in which we talked about systemic racism. Well, obstructing black voters is the primary objective. I mean, the systemic racism is aimed at college students, at tribes, at the poor, and at black communities. But, but the biggest target is black communities. So we have enormous reasons on S1 uh, to say, say this obstruction is unacceptable. But I think uh, at some point, we have so many checks in our system for new legislation. You have to get through committee. You have to get to the floor. You have to do it in the Senate. You have to do it in the House. You have to have a president who will sign it. If it requires funding, you have to have the funding bill done separately because policy authorizing is done separately from, from funding. So progressing on any issue already has enormous number of checks and I feel at some point we have to trust that if you can get through all of those checks by simple majority, well, then that's a, that's a pretty good series of uh, you got a lot of support to be able to clear all those hurdles in a two-year period. And uh, that's democracy. And an important point here is that our founders warned us against a supermajority, which is a minority has the veto over policy. And it's framed as well, minority rights. But what happened when you had minority rights in the Confederation Congress? That is, after the 1781 Articles of Confederation, that Congress was paralyzed because it required a supermajority, which meant the minority had the veto. So you had those crafters of the Constitution, Hamilton and Madison and others saying, don't do this. Don't let this happen. It will be tedious delays. It will be contemptible obstruction of the of common good. It will be standing democracy on its head where the minority makes the decision rather than the majority. Those who think, you know, most people think this is the wise choice, but we'll go the other direction instead. The fundamental premises, as Madison put it, is undermined. And so when we see that in other legislative bodies, same thing, in a, unable to address the issues of the day. We have so many issues in America that haven't addressed by the Senate because the Senate's in deep freeze. Not a cooling saucer like, like Washington said in an, an apocryphal statement. There's no actual record of him saying it. But a cooling saucer was the idea of six-year terms and at the at founding of the Constitution, the indirect election of senators, but not deep freeze. They warned us against this paralysis. We have ignored them. The filibuster is not in the Constitution. It was used for 80 years for nothing but blocking civil rights for black Americans. It was the cover story for racism and bigotry for decade after decade after decade. Uh, we need to be aware of this history and we need to be aware of the fundamental challenge we have of the failure of the Senate. And it's not just hurting how we get individual bills done, it's hurting America's reputation around the world. China and Russia right now are saying authoritarianism works better. Our system works better. Look at the U.S. They can't address issues. They can't move forward. They don't have a Belt and Road initiative. They don't address issues as they, they arise. They're getting the richer, getting richer while the poor are ignored. Well, um, America is not functioning in a fashion 
uh, that makes the rest of the world go, we want that system of government. We need to pay attention. We're seriously broken. Mitch McConnell is the master breaker of the Senate, and we need to fix it. Okay. And I hear you on that. So now um, you've got to convince your Democratic colleagues to go along with you. You know, before I do these interviews, I, you know, send out to, you know, trusted sources, you know, what would you want me to, what would you want me to ask this particular guest? And so one source came back and I'm just going to read you this one thing that they, that they wrote back and get your response. Um, And it's this, regardless of how I feel, my guess is the filibuster is going to stay. I have no direct knowledge of this, but I would bet that there is more skepticism about ending the filibuster among Senate Democrats than Manchin, Senator Manchin of West Virginia and Senator um, Kristen Sinema of Arizona. Since they made their views public, it allowed other senators to keep quiet. Is my source correct in that assessment? What we have seen over the, the past month uh, is a tremendous shift of sentiment within, within the caucus. You have people speaking out and clarifying their position who didn't do so before. You have Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar, who, Amy, who heads the Rules Commission or Rules Committee uh, from, uh, from Minnesota. You have Bob Casey, a rather moderate senator uh, from, from Pennsylvania. You, have, you just have the, you have the president speaking out. Uh, the, essentially, the story is Democrats saw the obstruct and delay strategy of McConnell under Obama. They saw the damage it did. The grassroots is saying, listen, you said if you got a majority, you would do these things on healthcare, housing, education, jobs, equality, climate, um, immigration, dreamers. Uh, are, Are you going to simply say you'll let Mitch McConnell have a veto over all that when you don't have a veto over his priorities? Uh, I mean, there's no tolerance for the excuses from from the caucus, and the caucus understands it. They have come to understand uh, that the Senate is biased for Republican priorities for the powerful. But we're not fighting for the powerful. We're fighting for the people. And the foundations for families to thrive have been profoundly underserved over the last four decades, really since I got out of high school. Because if there's four things that build the ability for families to do well and their children to do well, it's healthcare, housing, education, and a good paying job. And yet we have seen those middle class basically shrinking, uh, being hurt, uh, jobs declining, more stress, even after you add in the income of spouses who generally didn't work 40 years ago, uh, still, still struggling, housing prices through the roof, healthcare outrageous, and so forth. So uh, there, is, there is a no excuse pressure from the grassroots, and they are right. And if we don't act on S1 uh, and we allow obstruction of the ballot box, uh, that will be used to bias elections in swing states for the powerful over the people all across swing states in, in America. It means the ruling by the powerful that have already locked it in, you, a lot of power using their lobbyists, using their money to, to frame public media campaigns, uh, using their money in the dark side on, on elections, uh, all of this uh, has really put us in a position where policies keeps getting made to make the wealthy and powerful and privileged more wealthy, more powerful and more privileged. So this is a critical moment in the fight. Our grassroots understand they are not going to show up uh, in 2022 if, if, if we disappoint them. And uh, quite, quite frankly, even if they show up, they'll be blocked from the ballot box in sufficient numbers that 
that Republicans will take control. Uh, so we have core principles, constitutional principles to defend here. We have a key interest in the vision of America as a government by and for the people, not the powerful. Uh, we better uh, make sure we understand that. And the, the, the caucus has overwhelmingly come to understand this, this sentiment and move in the direction of saying Mitch McConnell's veto cannot stand. So then my last question is, when are you going to make a move? And is the move that's going to be made going to be to get S1, the For the People Act, as it's being considered in the Senate, over the line? Well, eventually we have to have 50 folks in the, in the room who agree on a strategy. And so the answer is, is, uh, is, is down the road. Uh, but meanwhile, the process of, of, of education and debate continues. I'm sure we'll see various uh, bills uh, blocked as we go forward by, by Republicans. Um, and I don't know which strategy eventually we'll end up uh, choosing, but I have confidence that 50 people in the room who have campaigned on the principles of government by and for the people, campaigned on access ballot box, have campaigned on better healthcare policy and education policy and housing policy and better job creation, are going to figure it out. All right, I lied. One more question, and that is, and that is this: as part of the strategy, is part of the strategy to have popular bill after popular bill after popular bill come to the floor for a vote and go down in a ball of flames because of Republican obstruction in an effort to educate the public about why the filibuster needs to be done away with so that voting rights and gun control and minimum wage and immigration reform can actually get through, passed on the president's desk and signed into law? Well, I don't think it has to be an intentional uh, strategy in that we would regardless of the filibuster, be putting these bills on the, on the floor. I think the Republicans would be a little more hesitant uh, to obstruct them, knowing that uh, this is a moment when they're very favorable position. Again, from Republican perspective, Republicans, heads they win, tails, Democrats lose, so they love that. They're going to be a little hesitant to uh, uh, basically give us uh, ammunition, so maybe they'll be more cooperative in the past. Maybe simply having this conversation means we'll Instead of getting 56 or 58 votes on background checks, we'll get 60. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see. But will we put bills like that on the floor? Ab absolutely. Will we hope we get 60 votes? Yes, we will. Uh, hope that. Uh, will the Republicans e essentially uh, block us? Probably, because that's been uh, Mitch's uh, forte, his theory of power, is that if you paralyze the Senate when there's a Democrat in the White House, that makes a better case for replacing the, the Democrats with Republicans. It's a very cynical, very destructive, very anti-democratic philosophy. It's not about solving problems for the people. It is about pure power politics, but it's worked for him. But now he has to be a little bit cautious uh, about how he, how he proceeds. So maybe we'll get those 60 votes on those, those same bills that would have been obstructed before. Senator Jeff Merkley of the great state of Oregon, thank you very much for coming to the podcast and also for putting up with the sirens that have been going by during, during this conversation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jonathan. Great to be with you. Thank you for covering this really important topic. We've got to, got to fix the broken Senate and make our democracy more responsive to the fundamental needs of Americans. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.